Welcome to another episode of Mama Earth Talk. I'm your host, Maris Canal. Realizing just how much waste we generate on a daily basis, I've set a personal goal not only to reduce, reuse, and recycle, but to also educate the world about sustainability and how each of us can help preserve our beautiful planet. Thanks for listening. Let's dig in. Hey, crazy birds. I hope you guys are doing well. Oh my goodness. I've got a fully loaded episode for you guys today. Such an amazing guest. It was an absolute honor to actually speak to her today. And she is National Geographic's explorer at large. She's an internationally renowned oceanographer, explorer, and the author of the highly anticipated forthcoming book, National Geographic Ocean, A Global Odyssey. She has been called Her Deepness, a living legend. Time magazine dubbed her the first hero of the planet. And she also holds the record for the deepest walk on the ocean floor. And she is a world-renowned expert on marine biology. She has led more than 100 oceanic expeditions and has logged over 7,000 hours underwater. She's also the president and the chairman of Mission Blue, as well as the Sylvia Earle Alliance. She has developed a comprehensive reference explaining the fundamental science of the oceans, with more than a hundred maps and diagrams, including seafloor and political maps of all Earth's seas and oceans. She has made a lifelong commitment to protect the planet with a soft spot for our blue heart, also known as the ocean. During this episode, we talked about how Dr. Earl's journey actually started, her love for the ocean. She also shared why it was important for her to write her latest book. We also dig a little deeper into the importance of the ocean and how we can do our part to help protect it, as well as how hotspots around the world are bringing hope back to our oceans. Crazy birds, without any further ado, I would like to welcome Dr. Sylvia Earle. Great to be on board. You're most welcome. You have had decades of an amazing career. I mean, you are 86 years young at this stage and still have loads of fuel to continue doing the amazing work that you're doing. But how did your journey actually start? As a child in New Jersey, my parents lived on a little farm. Most of what we ate, we grew. The ocean was, by today's standards, not far away. But at the time, it was quite a journey to go across southern New Jersey to get to the ocean. But I remember my first experience of seeing that vast blue space out there and It was exhilarating. I got knocked over by a wave. The ocean got my attention. But what held my attention, what has all these years, it's life in the sea. Creatures that only live in the ocean. You don't see starfish on the land. There's just so many things that are out there in the sea that I was captivated. And moving to Florida, 
when I was 12, just changed everything. My backyard then was the Gulf of Mexico. It was natural, I suppose, that I should just become entranced with the creatures that live there. And it's never stopped. I'm still entranced. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, there's so many new discoveries that people still make and, you know, so many amazing, amazing life that we see in the ocean. But Dr. Ill, you've done such an amazing job. You have shattered many glass ceilings in order to kind of pursue your passion. You grew up in a generation where women's career choices were very limited. You know, you, there was quite a gender bias, you know, females were either teachers, nurses, flight attendants, you were secretary, or you kind of worked in factories. That was kind of the norm. What made you pursue the path that you actually did? Just a passion for wanting to explore, to to know what's there around the corner, under (laughs) the next rock. (laughs) Kids are natural explorers. They are. We have a cultural habit of being so glad when kids learn to walk and talk, and then you tell them to sit down and be quiet. (laughs) So my parents, fortunately, were, they sympathized with the inclination to want to get out and explore. So I had the freedom to do that. When I, in New Jersey, in the, the woods were nearby in the farm. It's like a big laboratory. Then, of course, moving to Florida, having the ocean right there made it so easy for me to be an explorer. Anybody can still do it. You know, most of the ocean has yet to be seen let alone really explored. But even in your backyard, wherever you are, if you live in the middle of Australia, just looking around, observing carefully, reporting honestly what you see, you can be, anybody can be what scientists tend to be, keen observers. And that's really how, <laughs> how it starts. That's amazing. And it's been really quite a journey. And in 1970, you actually led an all-female team of marine scientists, Tektite 2, spending several weeks submerged in the ocean studying marine life. What was it like seeing more women following careers in science and actually becoming aquanauts? This is 1970. No astronauts were women. No, well, I guess there might be some exceptions, but women at sea were rare at all. And for those of us who noticed the application form that was spread around about anybody who would like to live underwater for two weeks, submit a research project, and you might be selected to become an aquanaut. And I was at Harvard at the time saw this notice on the bulletin board. Nothing in the notice said you had to be male. I wasn't alone. Other women saw the notice and made their applications, developed research projects. The research project I proposed was in collaboration with four other scientists. So we were going to work together on a project involving fish and and my specialty, the the seaweeds that live in the ocean. The project got accepted, but I was not because 
at the time they didn't expect women. <laughs> but my credentials and those of other women who had applied were at least as good as the men who submitted projects. So the head of the program, James Miller, he probably had a good marriage and he probably had a good relationship with his mother because he said, well, half the fish are female. I guess we could put up with a few women. <laughs> he convinced the others who were involved that it would be okay to have women, but men and women living together underwater, that was not acceptable. Just it's hard to believe in today's world that that attitude was so, so prevalent. But in any case, the idea was to take our projects and figure out how we could work together as a team and have that experience of living underwater instead of working with <laughs> my fellow fish guys. <laughs> I had to do what I could to learn about the fish while I was learning about the plants. So I had to do it all, the project that we planned to do together, working with my other teammates, but they had their own projects. But we did certainly get along and help one another with our research. And people thought five women living together for two weeks underwater, they'll go crazy. They, I don't know what they thought, <laughs> but we had such a good time. And we had more time in the water at the end, exploring and really using that underwater facility the way it was intended to, met, to give access to the sea. We, we spent 10, 12 hours a day and night outside in the water. So I think it surprised those who were watching and evaluating the behavior of the 10 teams, nine of them all male, one of them all woman. And at the end, because we were so happy doing what we were doing and getting along and doing good work and whatever it was, it convinced NASA that maybe they should seriously consider having women participate that it certainly gave it a gave a boost to the idea that women can hold their own under circumstances that otherwise were considered all male. Definitely. And I mean, that just like kind of set this whole tone for more women to get involved and also for young girls out there seeing that, you know, there is female aquanauts and you can be anything, anything you want to, if you just put your mind to it and put in the work. Do what you love, whatever special about you. I just had a, a passion for studying and getting to know life. I didn't know what it was, a biologist was called, but or an ecologist, to, to see how it all comes together with us as a part of the action. There's so, so much more information that you've written in the book as well. And We've touched a little bit about the book, but it's basically, it's your highly anticipated book, which is being released on the 16th of November. I am linking that up in our show notes. And I was fortunate enough to actually read the book prior to speaking to you today. And I was really blown away. Not only is it an amazing book with great photographs, it's got amazing maps that just captures this whole journey and the life in the ocean but it also breaks down each section that and takes you on this like deep dive of how everything is connected and the importance of the ocean. So Dr. Earl, why was it important for you to actually write this book? Well, 
this <laughs> has been, it's, it's called the Ocean, a global odyssey. In a way, it was a personal odyssey, uh, an opportunity to really reflect on what we now know about the ocean. We've learned more literally since the, during my lifetime about the nature of the ocean than during all preceding history. And the pace is picking up. The greatest era of exploration is literally just beginning. I mean, most of the ocean has yet to be mapped, let alone really explored. And the biggest gap is in the ocean itself, not the bottom, not the top, but that section from the surface down to an average depth of four, four and a half kilometers and the maximum 11 kilometers down. And it's, it, I've been a witness to the time when we, when the first descent to the deepest part of the ocean was made in 1960. And just in the last year or so, multiple trips to the deepest part of the ocean. Now, right now, couldn't say this five years ago, but you can today, that there are more people who have been to the bottom of the ocean, seven miles down, than have been to the moon. And for most of my life, well, since that first time that people went on the moon, you could say, you know, people have been to the, on the moon, but they haven't been to the, the deepest part of the ocean. But now we've come to the point where it is possible and people are going to the full ocean depth. So think about that, that to be able to gather the new information together and to present it in a form that is accessible. The, the idea was to take topics such as what is water? And little kids might want to know. You might want to know where did it come from? Where did the salt in the ocean come from? <laughs> Some of these questions, we still are seeking answers, but to get the, the best information and present it in page long or sometimes two pages that you can dive into almost anywhere and ask or find answers, at least as much as we now know. That's in the first part of the book. It's like, here is the ocean. <laughs> Here's your ocean. Here's the ocean, the history of it. Then the center part is, what about life in the ocean? It's a living system. But again, the idea is to take certain aspects of it and to present it in a way that make it accessible to people. And in the center, there's this wonderful fold-out that depict the whole spectrum of, of, of life in the sea, the 30 or so phyla of animals, these categories of life. Most of them are found only in the sea. I don't know what you think of, of or what most people think of what lives in the sea. If you, if you ask a, a kid, you might get answers about, well, they're sharks. <laughs> there, there are whales and dolphins. Uh, I guess you could say some of the seabirds are sea creatures. They're out there, depending on the ocean for their food and where they spend a lot of their time. But most people simply don't know about this spectrum of other creatures. Most of them small, but all of them beautiful. When you think about the variations on the theme of what lives in plankton, that never touch land at all. They're constantly bathed in this living soup. You cannot pick up a 
spoonful, let alone a bucketful of seawater without also bringing along a cargo of life. And some of them so small you don't see them without a microscope, but they're literally millions of microbes as well as the young stages of many other forms of life that the, the ocean is a nursery, the planktonic stages of fish where they're just swimming as tiny organisms. Ultimately, they get to be, some of them get to be quite large like tuna <laughs> but or whale sharks <laughs> to get to be really large. But um, whale sharks are not part of the plankton as such when they're first <laughs> released into the sea. But when you think about sponges, corals, starfish, the whole spe spectrum of creatures that are known to many people have a larval stage that is very small and inconspicuous when it's very young, but it, it makes life, makes water to be more like a soup. It's alive. <laughs> Think of that when you go surfing. You're surfing in the nursery, life in the sea. That's amazing because, you know, a lot of us, it's like you say, when you kind of have to say what's in, in the ocean, we don't necessarily know all of this. But after reading the book, it's just, it's, it's just fascinating to see or to know more. And it just makes me want to know more. And I can just imagine from your, your perspective as well, because in the book, you also state that you are a witness, a participant in the greatest era of ocean discovery and ocean decline in the history of humankind. What was the ocean like when you first started exploring as a child throughout your career versus what we have today? Well, there's, I think, good news and not so good news. And the good news is I've been a witness to recovery of turtles, sea turtles, that once were mostly considered something to eat, to turn their shells into something ornamental. You could hang a tortoise shell on the on, turtle turtle shell on the wall, or you make jewelry and things out of the certain kinds of turtles anyway. But mainly, mainly they're used and still are in some places as food. And there are more whales today than when I was a child. Why? Why more turtles? Why more whales? Because there has been a, a change of attitude about them. Their whales were once regarded as pieces of meat, barrels of oil. They're commodities, turtles, similarly. Just not thinking of them as creatures worthy of our respect for who they are, rather than just what they are in, in terms of the marketplace. And the bad news is that we haven't changed our attitude about other forms of ocean wildlife. So the large-scale extraction of wild fish, for example, that would just think of them as commodities, increasingly we're beginning to understand that every fish, like every whale, like every turtle, like every cat, every dog, every human, they're all individuals. All individuals. But they also have social structure. They have behaviors that we're just beginning to appreciate. They're not just lumps of meat swimming around for our benefit as something that we can use as a product or food. And 
when you understand that more than 90% of the blue fin tuna are gone, and that trajectory of abundance that was there when I was a kid brought down to a low level. Just decades, we have really imposed ourselves on these ancient systems. And just as on the land, clear-cutting forests were clear-cutting the ocean of life. But the cause, I think, for optimism <laughs> is like right now, for the first time, we're beginning to see the whole living earth as our life support system. And as it degrades the future prosperity of humans looks increasingly precarious. Where is the oxygen going to come from if we cut all the trees? And if we <clears throat> change the chemistry of the ocean, where the those miniature forests of plankton that do most of the heavy lifting in terms of generating oxygen, more than half of the oxygen in the atmosphere has been generated by sea creatures, the phytoplankton. And the sea grasses, the mangroves, the marshes, and the benthic algae, the, one, the creatures that grow in uh, the larger seaweeds that are conspicuous in some areas, such as in the south coast of, of Australia, where the water is cool, you get these beautiful forests of kelp. Well, they're in trouble right now, partly because the planet is warming, but we're beginning to understand that everything is not a product that that's been our habit over the history of humankind to take from nature nature is free fish are free you just have to go out and take them <laughs> and i think right about now we're beginning to see ourselves in perspective for the first time it's partly because we now have technology to gather information globally, that we can connect the dots, we can see patterns, we can dive into the past and see how the planet was. And we have witnesses such as I <laughs> and others who have been observing the nature of the ocean over long periods of time and can share the view. And there are, in some cases, even though photography has become much more sophisticated and readily available in my lifetime, they're nonetheless images, they're data banks that verify this is how life in the sea was 50 years ago. Here's how it is today. Look at the traje trajectory. <laughs> it's not very good in most cases. Yeah. Well, anyway, the, the latter part of the book actually addresses these issues. What? Why should I care about the ocean? What's the ocean ever done for me? <laughs> well, it keeps you alive, for one thing. Maybe the most important thing. Life support. And that's uh, how I think may, many people may really go first to that section of the book, the last few chapters that talk about how we have really transformed the ocean and what the real costs to us are now that we look back and also looking forward, what will the future be? Well, we have choices. It's what we do or fail to do right now that will determine what the ocean will be like, not just in the next few years, but for 
the next 10,000 years. We're right at the tipping point of losing so much so fast or giving giving the ocean and the creatures who live there a, a chance to recover and in it we recovering our future we need the ocean but the ocean really needs us right now to take the pressure off and the idea of having protected areas in the ocean is something that is really catching on that people are beginning to understand that we benefit when we have healthy coral reefs. We benefit when kelp forests prosper. We benefit when the chemistry of the ocean favors the spectrum of life as it has come to be over literally hundreds of millions of years, billions of years. That's amazing. And I mean, your book has really inspired me and there's there's quite a lot of stuff that's in there. And it has definitely become clear that with the, the larger fish that we used to see in the ocean, we no longer really see them in the ocean, but we do see them in restaurants, which is really terrible. And money seems to be such a big culprit for causing so much harm to our ocean and the environment. You know, a lot of people have their livelihood depends on the ocean, but it also sometimes go towards greed as well, because, you know, you don't need to take everything. We're extracting resources from the ocean. People are throwing stuff away in the ocean. We use it as a transport method. There's just so many more examples that you've actually listed in the book. But how do we get people to move towards environmental conservation and what economic benefits are there for that? There are a fair number of people around the world who are dependent on the ocean for their livelihoods, but all of us are dependent on the ocean for our existence, our life. Without the ocean, we wouldn't be here. We, life as we know it really depends on a healthy ocean. So when you consider those who take what is free, there's a zero accounting base for fish and prawns, lobsters, you name it. Anybody can go out and take them without paying for them. I mean, they're free, right? All you have to do is figure out how to go get them. Well, we have really become very good at finding, catching, and marketing the free goods that are out there in the ocean. But we're taking from everyone, those, especially those on an industrial scale that are just out there taking fish by the ton, hundreds of tons, thousands of tons, millions of tons of wild animals that are taken and marketed without worrying about who do I pay for these fish? Where do you pay? We're all paying. If anybody <laughs> owns them, nobody really does, but nobody has planted them. You know, we're not, we're, we're, we're taking from these ancient systems. It's true on the land as well with the forests that have been clear cut. Actually, you can technically buy and own by our standards a piece of old growth forest but to translate these ancient systems into cash really doesn't account for the 
the real loss to the whole planet as a whole. We can't put back an ancient forest. We can plant trees, but all of the systems that make a forest a forest, whether it's the, the, the mammals, the birds, the microbes in the soil, the whole network of life that makes a forest a forest. In the ocean, similarly, when a trawl is deployed, it scrapes the ocean floor, you, it's like clear-cutting a forest. You, you, everything that is <laughs> in the way simply gets gets destroyed. And what, there, are, there are some broader implications, the changing the chemistry of the ocean through our actions. It affects everyone, everywhere, all the time. That we're, we're beginning to be able not only to witness it, to see it, but we're measuring the, the change in the ocean's chemistry. And that if you, if you alter the plankton, the phytoplankton that generates oxygen and captures carbon, just as on the land, when you, you see the forests that are burning or the, the deliberately being cut or displaced by human, human uh, activities of various sorts, we're altering the nature of nature. And only now, I mean, it's really just about now that we are able to consider the world as one system and to see that it's made of really all these communities of life, this network. It's like a giant computer that has functioned very well. It's our life support system, keeps us alive, right? But now and we can see that taking pieces of the big computer out means that it's not functioning as well as it did even a few years ago. We're on a downwards trajectory right now because of the loss of many of the components that make this giant Earth computer, if you want to think of it that way, the living systems that make Earth habitable, our life support. If you just keep thinking about, okay, here's Earth, the blue planet, just, just bursting with life, but it's not just random, it's all connected in one way or another, that we're beginning to, to understand that we're not only a part of it, but we have had such an impact on all the rest and a, mostly a destructive impact. But now that we can see it, and if we want to be a continuing piece of the action to become a live in harmony with the rest, then we have to change our ways. We have to respect trees for more than bored feet of lumber. We need to respect fish for something other than a product. We need, we, we've made some progress with whales. Consider, I, I visited the last whaling station in Australia, Albany, in 1978. This was, I, I actually witnessed six young sperm whales being hauled up and watched them being carved into long strips that were fed into the cooking pots that, that rendered these long strips of blubber into oil and meat that were, you know, it's just, I watched the, this beautiful creature, a full, well, six young male sperm whales just turned into nothing, you know, oil and meat. It was really the following year, there's a referendum in Australia asking people to vote on whether 
Australia should be a willing nation or not. And it was remarkable. Many people stepped up and said, we want our whales alive, not dead. And it did affect the livelihoods of, I think, on the order of about 150 people. Some that really, that was their primary source of revenue. And others, it was a part-time job for them during the season when they went out to kill the whales. But look at the attitude today and how many people were making a good living from watching whales. And how all of us, even if we're not directly connected by a livelihood from watching whales, a study was made by the International Monetary Fund that was presented at the World Economic Forum in 2020. I attended and listened to this, this amazing review of what are whales worth in terms of climate. Look at the carbon value. Blue carbon is a new new term, but it is really reflecting on the value of life in the ocean for carbon capture and storage, comparable in some ways to what forests do on the land for carbon capture and storage. They've been doing this throughout the history of life on Earth. <laughs> it's a living cycle of, of carbon, the living cycle of of the other elements that are constantly in motion, but they're patterns that have evolved. So International Monetary Fund study found that each whale has a value of far in excess of a million dollars alive. How much is a single whale worth dead? But that value of a live whale and, and all the whales together, the value for their carbon capture alone related to climate, we're talking big T, trillion dollars, which is a number that wow. my little brain, I have to think, that's a lot. <laughs> yeah. That's a lot. Oh, wow. I mean, even understanding what a million is or a billion, but we're talking a trillion dollars, U.S. dollars, actually, <laughs> in terms of, of that, the value for carbon alone, but there are other values, too, and that is the ethical relationship we have with nature. Why should we on our watch feel that we have the right to, on a wholesale level, obliterate whole categories of life, whether it's whales or seals or birds or fish or squid or octopus or you name it? Why should we think that it's all about us now when it has taken all preceding history to get to a planet that works in our favor. And in a few decades, we're unraveling these systems with technologies that only now exist. But can we understand the consequences to us and to the future of civilization, our species, all the things that we value, whatever they are, art, music, our history, we value our families, the future of our families, whatever it is you care about, are all on the line because of our overly aggressive way of like waging war on nature, waging war on mama earth. <laughs> now we have to make or, or else we're out of here because nature will go on one way or the other with us or without us. But don't we care about the future? If we do, then we'll shape up, wise up. 
So you've got in your book quite a lot of quotes. And one of the quotes is from President Obama that you've actually met and got a beautiful photo as well in the book. And he quoted and says, our children prove every day that they care deeply about this planet. Their right to inherit a healthy planet is a sacred responsibility for all of us. And how we treat our oceans is a big part of that burden. How do we get more people to actually find that connection with the ocean to number one, care for it, and then for them to want to protect it and preserve it for future generations? Doing exactly what you're doing. Communicate. <laughs> okay. well, there's no excuse anymore because the knowledge is not only there for anyone to become acquainted with the information that is available to everyone. When I was a kid, there was no internet. There were, I remember the first Disney films about nature that I thought that were just fantastic. And then Jacques Cousteau with Silent World. And it, uh, just now we are surrounded by access to knowledge that is far more accessible than was the case during any time in history. So it's up to each of us to take advantage of this new, amazing capacity to dive into the past, to look around into the present and to imagine the future. Because humans have always been able to do this in some ways, and we're not unique in that respect. I think that there are social structures in elephants that have roots in history and they have traditions and they pass knowledge on from one generation to the next. There's evidence that whale societies, orcas, sperm whales, and others, the, the more we look, the more we find that there are elements of this, of traditions, if you will, of social structures that do not just happen every year, but they rep represent long history. I mean, migration patterns of birds we know are passed along over generations. And it's true with fish as well, that the old fish learn and the young fish follow and they learn the pathways. But no creature is better than humans have been at diving deeply into history, knowing how old the earth is, Knowing about the universe, we, we know what stars are. Elephants might wonder what stars are, but we know what they are. We know that, that we're part of a solar system. We know that Earth is round. But humans didn't always know that. That's something that has been learned about life in the deep sea. Only creatures that live in the deep sea may be aware of what it's like down there, but no whale can go to the deepest part of the ocean. And I think it's it's also so important for people to get that hands-on experience and see, you know, go and explore. Because for me, one of the most like memorable experience I ever had, and I'm feeling like I'm getting even goosebumps just to remember that again, was when we were in Mozambique on this very pristine piece of land, there was no development. Like you literally, you camp, you brought whatever you have wanted and you take it all back. And we were fortunate enough to 
see a loggerhead turtle lay her eggs. And as we were kind of, you know, camping with one of the researchers that did her studies in in turtles, she like came and called us in the evening and said, you know, they're coming, they're coming. And so we experienced that whole coming out of the ocean. We had to like dig a little hole to count how many eggs so she can do her research. And it was just phenomenal until Till today, it's one of those moments where I just look back and I'm like, wow, you know, that is just one part of the ocean. And, you know, I got to experience that. How much more is there that I have not yet seen? That no one has seen. We do know enough to know that the world is changing, not in our favor, because of us. And that we have to understand and appreciate and respect this web of life, the turtles that lay their eggs, the migration routes of birds, the, the role that insects play in cycling the nutrients, the, the, the stuff of life, the, the carbon, the nitrogen, the sulfur, the phosphorus, all of these things that are part of what keeps us alive. And it's a living system. And we're so fortunate to not only be a part of it, but to really have the best chance of any creature who's ever lived, including our previous humans. We're so fortunate to be 21st century humans armed with the insight, the knowledge that now exists and the ability to either continue to consume and destroy the natural systems that underpin our existence or to use that power to protect and save what remains and become a part of the action going forward. Every second breath that we basically take is because of a healthy ocean and protecting it is so important. In your book, you also talked about it, that the United Nations has set a goal to protect 30% of the oceans by 2030. Although that's a good start, you know, we can always protect more. But what can we do, like our crazy birds, what can we do to help protect our oceans? Going back to one of your earlier questions, look in the mirror. Understand what your personal power, what you have the capacity to do. Knowing what the problems are, figure out how can you be a part of the solution. Make the, the personal choices you make about what to eat, what to wear, how you travel, how you share the knowledge, or may I dare I say the wisdom you have about what matters. If you have a, a child, or if you don't have a child, you could borrow one to look at the future through their eyes, to go to some wild place, whether it's out in the outback of Australia, in a rainforest, or out into the ocean to see the natural systems that, that keep us alive. You know, it isn't just that the ocean gives us every other breath we take. Our life, period, our existence depends on the existence of the, not just the water that's out there, the living ocean that has taken so long to develop these, these closely knit systems that hold the planet on a steady course, and we're the beneficiaries of that. So what we do to cut through these systems, to damage the ocean through what we're putting in, through what we're taking out, 
it's a price we pay that that we're we're losing the resilience that once was taken for granted, but we can't take it for granted anymore. The ocean is becoming more acidic. It's losing the resilience, losing these tightly knit communities of like half the coral reefs gone, half of the seagrass meadows gone, on the order of half of the phytoplankton, something more than 40% since the 1950s have declined. And it isn't just the existence of green stuff in the ocean. It's what kind of phytoplankton is there because it matters as part of the food chain. The creatures are adapted to munching on certain kinds of phytoplankton. So it's not just the fact that you have creatures out there of some kind that photosynthesize. No, it's a mix of diatoms, a mix of coccolithophores, a mix of prochlorococcus in various forms that all, again, it's not just homogenous. It makes sense. They're, it's a closely knit, highly developed, sophisticated chaos of life. <laughs> and I mean, 2030 has another great goal as well. And that is Seabed 2030 that you also talk about in your book. And that is to basically map the gaps. Now for crazy birds, you probably heard about Google Maps, Google Earth. So we've got Google Ocean that is working together with amazing explorers, scientists, oceanographers, and to basically capture the data and to map the ocean. Why, Dr. Earl, is it so important to actually get this whole map of the ocean? Well, we've given priority to it on the land. It, I mean, it just seems so obvious that we need to know the science of where, where are we? And how does everything connect? Map the gap is a nice catchy phrase, but most of the ocean, the sea floor is a gap. We've only mapped about 15%. Well, maybe if you take all the little bits and pieces, maybe as much as 20%. I mean, 80% of most of the planet we don't, don't even have a, a good map, a map as good as the land or a map as good as what we have for Mars or the moon yeah. or Jupiter. Come on. We <laughs> need to it's spend some time actually here. Don't you want to know where you are or what's there? Yeah. And the map of the seafloor is just the beginning because what about the, the space in between? Where, where are the currents? We, we are beginning to understand using special instrumentation about the these rivers in the ocean that run, some of them rivers of cold water, some rivers of warm water that lace the planet. And we, it's amazing we don't know. And of course, they don't stay exactly in the same place, but we need to know that too. The currents that flow around Australia that are so important to the migratory species, whether it's tuna or turtles or whales, or the birds that follow where, where the buffet is in the ocean, they follow where the food is. Areas of upwelling are driven by the movement of ocean currents. And, and in the first part of the big ocean book, I try to really zero in on the importance of knowing the nature of the currents, the tides, and the configuration of the seafloor itself, that in some ways 
because it's not just flat, that there are lots of, of mountains, thousands of, of sea mounts and long mountain chains in the ocean that we've learned about in really my lifetime. Their existence, mm-hmm. in some cases, was suspected, but not really defined until we had the means of being able to use sound to map the ocean and to be able to go there in little submersibles and remotely operated vehicles. And now with autonomous, independent mapping systems that can be deployed and send sound into the ocean and record the information and then send that data to satellites. (laughs) Something that the early explorers, going back even 100 years, let alone a thousand years, just could not imagine that we can do what is now possible. We should never take it for granted. We should realize what a gift it is that we have this superpower of knowing, of being able to explore on a level that is more comprehensive right now than ever before in history. We have to use this knowledge to safeguard our future. So, Dr. Earl, you are the chairman and the president of Mission Blue, which is an organization that's dedicated to protecting the ocean. And Mission Blue has designated more than 140 community-supported hope spots. And they are listed on your website. I'll link to that as well in the show notes. Can you share with us what is a hope spot and what is your hope with listing them? The first areas that were designated as hope spots were, I would say, more or less arbitrary, but not really. They're places that, and if you ask anybody what parts of the ocean are so important that you would really want to protect them, um, the Great Barrier Reef, the Coral Sea, mm-hmm. like, duh, <laughs> of course they need to be protected. They already are in some ways, but not not as strongly protected as they need to be if they are to be an enduring system, they're vulnerable to climate change, obviously. They're vulnerable to overfishing. They need to be highly or fully protected to be able to withstand some of the other pressures that are more global in nature. The Galapagos Islands. Well, of course, who wouldn't want to protect this iconic place? So the first dozen or so were like that, the the icons of the ocean. But since then, we've really relied on champions around the world and communities around the world to say, we care about this place. And either it is already in pretty good shape and we want to keep it that way, or places that have been degraded, they're resilient, they're some of the beautiful places lost, that they want to do what they can to bring about recovery. So a commitment to go from wherever they are, like San Francisco Bay is a hope spot. It's not exactly pristine, but people here are taking action to restore the oysters, the local native oysters to better health. And they're restoring and protecting the seagrass areas that once were really abundant, but now are just limited to small areas. Everywhere around the world, there are places where individuals are stepping up, communities stepping up to say, we care and we will do what we can to go from wherever we are to be a part of this 
new goal of trying to achieve fully protected or highly protected ocean by 2030 so that every bit contributed to this big goal of restoring health to the ocean. Good for the ocean, good for the whales, good for the birds, but really good for us. Our life support system is in trouble. And with individuals committing to doing what they can using their power and the community power. And to one of the things that I'm really excited about now is that working with Esri, we worked with Google to begin to you know, look at the ocean with new eyes with Google, not just Google Earth, but the ocean in Google Earth to dive in and see what the ocean is like, not just at the surface, but going down deep into the sea. With Esri, this global information system organization based in California, but with global reach, we're mapping each of the hope spots, defining the space that is embraced within each place and telling, having what uh, Esri calls a story map so that this area is defined, not just by the space that it occupies, but who lives there and what other data can be gathered and made available. So you get to know the nature of this place and to be able to share the view and connect with other hope spots around the world. So layers of data with a consistent framework so that the goal is to be able to say, where in the world are there whale sharks? And what is the environment like where these individual creatures, but ecosystems across the board, where do they exist? to be able to be a useful data source that call them citizen scientists, if you will, but data gatherers is a better way to put it. A place they can put their observations that have meaningful, consistent ways of organizing the data and sharing it across the world. So these are not just beautiful places, but they're useful data sets that begin to show patterns over time. We only have now a 10-year history, but we're drawing on deep history of knowledge that has been gathered in places that go back for many decades. In the Gulf of Mexico, uh, individuals have been studying the nature of seagrass meadows and coral reefs. There's one scientist who's been studying dolphins for 50 years. He's got data on the, you know, the one of the hope spots is the Florida Gulf Coast. So Randy Wells, with his data set of dolphins living in this area, is inputting it into this framework so that it connects his data and connect with other information. So you begin to see how things relate as on a system-wide basis. So it's a big, big goal. The thing is that Anybody can be a part of it. Oh, that's amazing. And it's really great that, you know, this knowledge comes out and that the more people know, the better they can do, the more they can protect. And there's a lot of stuff that I read in the book that I didn't know. And I was just like, wow, you know, I've been on this journey for some time and I'm still learning. And it's just amazing. And, you know, every time I go to the ocean, I just get the sense of calm and you just experience new things. And, you know, for a lot of people I know when they think ocean and they think sharks and here, especially in Australia, where 
trying our best to fight that they protect and save our sharks. But, you know, for me, it was really coming face to face with like, you know, seeing a great white in the ocean and experiencing that and thinking, wow, that's so like kind of serene and it's like calm. And, you know, this is this beautiful, majestic life. And, you know, so many people are so scared of it and just want to take their life. So it's things like that. Once you understand why they are there and try to protect them, that's, I think we need more of that, more people to see hands-on what is happening. Every living thing is a miracle. When you look at the universe, where is their life? It's here. And every form of life has a story. Every individual has a story. And begin to appreciate that and not just think that the, the natural world is there for us to take, to be a respectful part of the system that keeps us alive, and to understand that our actions matter both through what we do and also what we don't do. It all matters. There's another quote from President Obama I use often. He said that our highest priority must be to keep the world safe for our children. Now, he was at the time thinking about guns and things, <laughs> but that thought, keeping the world safe, not just from other actions of other humans, but what we're doing to the systems that keep us alive. When you see people doing things that shred the network of life, think about what are the consequences? What does that mean for my future? The network of life is being trashed. Our life support system is really in trouble. What can you do, each of you? What can we do together that can mend, to heal the harm, to really show respect for life? Of course, for one another in ways that maybe we're finally getting to the point where we can see the world through the eyes of others and respect how they live, what they care about. But we all care about being alive, right? We all know that we can't, like, if you were just transported to Mars, you couldn't step out of your spacecraft and breathe. We can't take our life support system here on Earth for granted anymore because we have already done so much to harm those systems. Our job right now, in every way we can, with every decision we make, do what we can to restore health to the very systems that are now in serious trouble, but can be made better than they currently are through our actions. Exactly. Oh, that's amazing. Well, so Dr. Earl, what has been one of your most important decisions that you've made around Mama Earth? Well, taking the plunge, I guess. <laughs> not, <laughs> not worrying too much about what some people would think of as, as obstacles and trying to give back. When I, I think the books that I read before programs such as the David Attenborough's wonderful way of sharing why nature matters 
Why the Earth Matters, the books that I read as a kid really made that impression on me. And, and what I could see for myself that over the years, especially in Florida, where so much has changed so fast, that places that I knew and loved in along the coastal region around the, on the west coast of Florida just got buried. The seagrass meadows had little seahorses and just the, this great array of life were simply obliterated when they use this process of what that is called reclamation. <laughs> it's taking coastal water and sort of pumping the sand and mud and whatever else is living there becomes the basis for a parking lot or a condominium or a shopping center, building land where there was ocean. And it's, it's a process that's happened globally, but I witnessed it happening as a child and I, I was devastated seeing all those creatures that I'd gotten to know that were just got you know, buried, got transformed into something for human use. That is something that you also talk about in the book. And I mean, I lived in Dubai for seven years. And when you look from an architectural point of view and you see, you know, the palm and you see the world islands, you're like, oh, wow, you know, this is like extraordinary. But when you actually look deeper of the effects of what that has on the ocean and on the actual animals that lived there previously, it just blew me away when I discovered that. And it wasn't until I actually read your book that I kind of had this deeper understanding. Well, I visited Dubai when I was chief scientist of NOAA. This was after the great oil spill that at the time headlined news all over the world. It's when the oil, oil was deliberately allowed well, from ships and also oil wells were destroyed and this avalanche of oil went into the Persian Gulf. And I was there on a number of occasions in 1990, 91. And there was evidence about the places that we saw then that were smothered with oil marshes and seagrass meadows and, and areas offshore from the coast of, of Saudi Arabia and Kuwait and the whole coastal region, places that escaped being oiled were amazing in their diversity. And a lot like the places that I knew in the Gulf of Mexico, instead of manatees, there were dugongs, but there were seagrass beds and fish called grouper. <laughs> I think you call them cod in, in Australia. The big potato cod is a giant grouper <laughs> in the Great Barrier Reef. I mean, coral reefs almost everywhere have common assemblages of parrotfish and grouper and snapper and other similar, but I mean, they're different species, but they're, they're related and they have comparable roles in the system. And when I think of how some of those places that, that again, I got to visit and see underwater, and we, we had scuba available to us, we used other methods as well during an expedition in the spring of 1991 to, to look at places that are now under massive amounts of, of cement, where there's beautiful buildings that you 
comment, they're built on, some of them at least, are built on what was the seagrass meadow, what was a coastal marsh that was just crowded with other forms of life that are now buried, you know, we causing geological change in the span of a few decades. Exactly. I am going to start off with our final five. What is one social media account or publication that you follow? National Geographic, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. And what is your hope for Mama Earth going forward? That you continue to inform and inspire as you already do. But I think it's great that you are a voice for nature. Oh, amazing. Thank you. And what advice can you give our crazy birds this week to help out Mama Earth? I would say that you should look in the mirror, see what you can do based on who you are. No two people are alike. So what you can do is unique to you. And rather than have me tell you, look in the mirror and ask that question and then go for it. I love that. And what is one sustainability fact that you like to use in a room with people that is not yet on a sustainable journey? The one thing that people should take to heart is to consider how the world was when you were a child. And if you're a child, there is information about how the world was. Let's choose a moment in the middle of the 20th century to a child that seems a long time ago. To some of us, it was <laughs> in our lifetime. And then think about your parents and your grandparents, how the world has been, and consider how much it has changed. It's we are experiencing geological change in the span of one human lifetime. And if you just look, while looking back, also look forward and consider what it will be like if we continue doing the same things that we now are doing. Consider that half the coral reefs are gone, that 90% of many of the big fish that we consume are gone how long before they're all gone? In North America, only 5% of the old growth forests remain that we've consumed. That means 95%. We can soon eliminate all of these old trees and all of the system. How long before they're all gone if we continue doing what we're doing? So let's just look at the evidence and look at the what only humans are able to do this, to, to think about the past with evidence of how things were and anticipate the future, knowing that it, if it continues, here's where we'll be. And armed with that knowledge, consider what you can do, who you are, where you are. And if you can really understand that this is a moment in time that is critical. We have a chance to reverse decline like no other people in the past, because now we know what they could not know. That's pretty exciting. We can be the heroes for all future generations that we 
turned from decline to recovery because we took action now. Wow, I love that. And that is so true and something that, you know, all of us can actually look at and doing as well. And Dr. Earl, where can people actually find you and your upcoming book? My upcoming book with National Geographic is Ocean, A Global Odyssey. And you can get it wherever books are sold generally, (laughs) certainly uh, (laughs) through National Geographic. But if you go online and check out this National Geographic publication, it should be pretty easy. It's, it's a, you can order it now. It comes out in November, but um, it's soon going to be, I hope, in bookstores everywhere. <laughs> but, I'm definitely going to link where our crazy birds can go and purchase it as well in our show notes. So guys, head over there. And on your social media accounts, or is there anything that we can just um, say to our crazy birds where they can look you up as well? Look for Mission Blue, www.mission-blue.com. That's the website that talks about much that I talk about in the book, including, you know, every one of the chapters in the book features a hope spot. And hope spots are areas that people around the world have adopted, nominated, and are doing what they can to bring from whatever state they're in to a better place. Ultimately, the goal is to join with others to bring about protection for at least 30%, at least a third of the world by 2030. And then not to stop, keep going. (laughs) By by 2050 (laughs) to consider getting to protecting, restoring, embracing at least half the world. It's a wonderful concept, the understanding that the ocean and the land, the, the wild animals and plants, the, the natural systems make Earth habitable. We're so lucky to think about what, what is Mars really like? When I was a kid, no one had been sent probes to Mars to really check out the red planet. No one had been to the moon either, the closest big chunk of rock and a little bit of water up there in the sky that we call the moon. But as far as we know, there may be life wherever there's water. There could be life. There there can't, as far as we know, life does not exist without water, but water can exist without life. And there's quite a lot of water in comets. We've, We've discovered the existence of what looks like an ancient ocean on Mars. But Consider what it would be like to live there. There are no trees, no big liquid ocean. The atmosphere is mostly carbon dioxide, much like Earth's early atmosphere. But we're blessed with a living planet. It's the, the fact that we can just breathe the air. Well, in some places it's hard, like Los Angeles sometimes. It's hard, but the natural atmosphere of earth is just right for humans and life as we know it and think about going to another place in the universe well first we have to take our life support system with us or try to figure out how to do what some are trying to do to look at mars and terraforming mars to make it more earth-like so you can 
breathe the air. Well, huh, it's taken like several million years to get Earth adjusted to change just rocks and water. Thank you so much, Dr. Earl, for being on the podcast. I really, I, I mean, like really fangirling. I absolutely love all the work that you've been doing. You are just like such an inspiration and just make me want to do more as well. So thank you so much for that. Thank you for having me on board. It's been a great <laughs> journey. <laughs> we should be so thrilled to be alive right now. This is literally the sweet spot in all of human history that never before could we know what is now known and never again will we have a better chance than now exists to turn from decline to recovery. It's just going to get harder as time goes by. Right now, we still have 10% of the sharks, maybe as much as 10% of the big tunas in the oceans are still out there. Half the coral reefs are still in pretty good shape. We haven't lost them all. So it's on our watch, your watch, together. We can be the heroes for all of civilization to follow. The, the generation that got it, that turned from consumption, from taking so much from nature that the planet was really on a, on a, on a dreadful course of change toward a place that is no longer hospitable for us. Or, and this is, this is our chance, we can restore the damaged systems. We can give back to the ocean, give back to nature, save what remains of the ancient systems that are still there. We haven't lost them all, but this is the moment as never before, and literally as never again. This is not just our time. It's the most important time, perhaps, in all of human history. So we should be empowered, excited, and really enthusiastic and to take this moment in time and do what we can to savor it and, and go for it. Oh, wow. Amazing. Thank you so much, Dr. Earl. And that's a wrap. Huge thank you for our amazing guest for being on the podcast and for sharing their journey with us. You can find the show notes of this episode on the mamaearthtalk.com's website. The biggest thank you goes out to all of you crazy birds for listening to the podcast. If you have not already listened to all of the episodes, you can go back to a few of them. You will absolutely love them. I really enjoyed recording every single one of them and I really hope that you enjoy listening to them. There's over a hundred episodes so if you feel a little bit lost on which one to listen to next maybe select one of the episodes with guests that you might want to know more of and start from there. If you enjoy the episodes why not tell a friend about the podcast and maybe share an episode with them. Let them know that we are here and we are waiting for them with open arms and they are all very welcome to join the crazy birds globally. If you have a question for me, please send them over. The best way to get in contact with me would probably be a DM on Instagram. You can either send it to my personal, which is at Zero Waste Mariska, 
or the podcast, which is at Mama Earth Talk, or send me an email at hello at mamaearthtalk.com. If there's a particular guest or topic that you would like to hear on the podcast, let me know. I love to hear from all you crazy birds. New episodes are uploaded every second Monday, so make sure to subscribe that you do not miss a thing. Mama Earth has a voice and it's us crazy birds.